Welcome to the Who Cares Podcast, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. Welcome back to Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars. Today, Ryan and I are pleased to bring you Dr. Amanda Graham. She is an assistant professor of criminal justice and criminology at Georgia Southern University. She comes to us via uh, Ohio, but from Nebraska originally, and she is here today to talk to us about fear in um, policing, but more over the fear of minorities in policing. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, to kind of give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I actually started off as an electrical engineer in my undergrad and took a quite a sharp left turn, sort of say, uh, in terms of getting into criminal justice. Uh, after getting my undergrad in psychology, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, per se, and uh, so I took a job as a security officer for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Police Department. And within about nine months, I ended up being promoted into being a police dispatcher, uh, which to me is quite fascinating place to work. Um, you see all the ins and outs of law enforcement. And for a while, I thought that I wanted to go into law enforcement and be an officer. Um, but about after three or four years, I realized that that was not my calling. <laughs> that, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating place that needs a lot of work, but uh, it's not exactly for me, should I say. Um, so I went on to go get my PhD, like you said, out of Cincinnati uh, in policing. And one of the things that I brought with me from dispatching was the very much intersected nature of police and their communities. Uh, and, and the impact that that has, not only on the police officers themselves, but their communities as well. And so uh, one of the things that has kind of popped up in the media today is, well, fearing the police, police brutality, excessive use of police force. And so uh, this paper kind of came about uh, simply at looking at different types of fear. And do people, based simply on their race and ethnicity, differ in their levels of fear about different events, such as fearing or worrying about police brutality, or things like terrorism or violent crime? Um, and so that's kind of where this, this project took off. Very interesting, and, and I, you know, I'd like to get this kind of covered right out of the gate. Is that you know a lot of people first thing they're going to say to you is, well, if you weren't doing anything wrong, you don't have any reason to fear or worry about the police. So before we get too deep into what you found in your paper, can you address that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, when we think about that idea, it's a bit simple. After all, many of us could go into any situation and find ourselves looking suspicious. I mean, I myself, if I were to go into a certain neighborhood, I would absolutely look out of place and suspicious. And so that might lead somebody to call the police on me, right? Being like, oh, I don't know why she's there. But <laughs> so while I may not have been doing anything criminally wrong, the police may have their attention brought to me. Um, simply because I look out of place. Now, scholarly, we refer to this as race out of place most often. Um, and the idea that we have nothing to worry about if we're not doing anything wrong, like I said, it, it's a bit too simplistic of an idea. Um, because 
after all, we are the taxpayers. We are the people who are requesting the service of the police. So we should expect them to behave in a way that reflects our norms and values and ideals. And, and, and that sort of brings up that um, Ahmaud Arbery case where he was just a young man. He was raised out of place by, by these two particular individuals who took the law into their own hands. He, it was just assumed to be up to no good. So that's where that worry comes from is sometimes that's, I'm just in the wrong place at the wrong time and being seen as a threat. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that we have to be, you know, cognizant of the fact that everybody has walked through life with a different lens. Everybody has their own perspectives and perceptions of things. And while those perspectives and perceptions um, are, are unique to each of us, they do shape how we act and how we behave. And therefore, we need to be aware of those implicit biases, rather, you know, whether they are in regards to race or sex or uh, sexual orientation. Each of these implicit biases that we all carry with us shapes how we think and how we act, whether we cognitively think about it or not. Yeah, and I imagine that implicit bias goes both ways. It, it comes from the police officer who is responding to a potential threat, and it also comes from the person who is the perceived threat looking at the police officer, assuming maybe wrongly or rightly that this is not going to go well regardless of the situation. Absolutely, absolutely it goes both ways. I mean, I know that even I myself, who does not consider myself to be, you know, demeaning to other people, you know, I know that I carry implicit biases because I have been raised in a certain environment. Um, therefore, like you said, the officer themselves is going to have impl implicit biases as well as whoever they're contacting. And so at the intersection of those two different sets of perceptions and biases, be it implicit or explicit, that's where we start running into potential for problems. Um, like you mentioned, for Ahmaud Arbery, he had no idea why law enforcement, or for that matter, why those two individuals were trying to contact him. Um, and so one of the things that we have to think about is where do these perceptions come from and, and how do they get passed down? One of the things that we know from research is that often these perceptions and views, especially in regards to law enforcement, are intergenerationally transmitted. So parents teach their children who teach their children. So even without contacting the police personally, these perceptions about what law enforcement is doing and how they're going to respond and what a person, a community member, is going to be doing and how they are going to respond to something is, is driven by these intergenerational beliefs, values, and norms. One of the things that I find concerning is that these negative encounters, the research shows us that they weigh, they weigh much heavier than positive encounters. So for instance, think about this. If you go to a restaurant and you have, you know, a dinner, you're out with friends, the next morning you wake up and you have food poisoning. Are you gonna go back to that place? Probably not. <laughs> right? And so that negative encounter has, has weighted in your mind very heavily about how you feel about that place. The same thing happens in law enforcement, not only for the community member, but for the officers themselves, in which negative experiences are much more easy to retrieve. In fact, if I recall correctly, it's upwards of between 11 and 13 times more impactful to have a negative encounter 
than it is to have one positive one. That's actually pretty interesting because the same thing can sort of be said in education where you have that that one potentially really bad teacher that's the one you remember all your life because they were so bad it doesn't matter that you had hundreds of really really good teachers it's the the negative that we tend to focus on more than the positive absolutely absolutely i mean i think that's why for instance some people get scared of math because they receive a a negative sense of feedback from from math and so it kind of dissuades them from getting involved with it so uh, these fears these these weights of negative experiences we see them all through our lives the thing is is that it's not just in our day-to-day lives it's in law enforcement it's in our communities amanda tell us about this uh, current project that you're working on so this project has actually just been published uh this year in victims and offenders and uh interestingly it is already ranked number five gonna be soon number four on the all-time views list on this journal so very exciting very exciting um and it's already been cited five times i mean this thing has not been out very long so to me that says that this project was very important that people needed to know about this research um so to step into this this project one of the things historically that we know is that perceptions about law enforcement are very much polarized and typically by race right and so On one hand, we have how white community members view things compared to how uh, African-American community members, Hispanic community members, and so on and so forth view things. Now, when it comes to specifically Hispanic community members, one of the questions we had was, do they fall somewhere in between white and African-American community members, or are they kind of on one end of the pole or the other? Are they kind of being brought in as this in-group for white community members or are they kind of still being held as an outgroup uh, for the african-american community and other people of color right um, we refer to this as uh, the first one being the, well, the racial divide hypothesis right racial divide now with that continuum of white hispanic black we have what's known or what's thought to be the racial and ethnic gradient thesis in which there's a gradient of perspectives uh, as you move from somebody who is white to a person of color or somebody who's deemed more of a person of color, right? Um, So what we did is we ended up working with an international survey company, YouGov, um, very, you know, reliable source, um, and they ended up surveying a thousand individuals for us and estimated a nationally representative sample. Um, I won't bore people with the details about how they got there. It's boring. (laughs) I don't find it boring. (laughs) Okay, so for those readers who really, for those listeners who really wanna know, it's it's matched opt-in sampling. They take a sampling frame from uh, places like the American Community Survey, um, and they take their respondents and pair them up with a similar respondent from the American Community Survey. So they approximate what we already know to be a probabilistic-based sampling of the United States community members. Um, And then they're able to estimate and weight based on those approximations. Um, So... One of the forthcoming papers that we have is actually testing whether or not that YouGov sample is indeed representative. It is. Okay. So, a little highlight there early. (laughs) Um, But, nonetheless, we ended up with a thousand individuals, right? And so what we did is we specifically only looked at the white, Hispanic, and African-American members of that sample. 
Um, and we wanted to understand what are their levels of worrying about police brutality, but we also wanted to know what is that level of worry in the context of other worries, such as worrying about terrorism or violent crime or even hate crime, um, to understand in a level, where does fearing police brutality stand? Um, one of the things we talked about earlier before this recording was, what's the difference between fear and worry? Well, I mean, most often we use those interchangeably, um, but that would be a bit imprecise. Uh, when we think about fear uh, in the context of what we're talking about here, fear is a very immediate reaction to a very immediate problem. Uh, when we talk about worry, we're talking more about a rumination, something that you're constantly fretting about. Um, so when we think about, uh, for example, the coronavirus, we can definitely think about that worry. I mean, we've all been worrying since March, right? So, or even sooner. But nonetheless, that worry is this kind of slow undercurrent of, of not necessarily an immediate danger, but something that could happen. Um, and so knowing those two distinctions, we wanted to get at that undercurrent because after all, most people don't come into contact with law enforcement on a year-to-year -year basis. It's, it's rather infrequent. Um, so what is this undercurrent? Now, basically, we ended up surveying these individuals. Um, they answered a whole host of other questions related to uh, fears of terrorism and all sorts of other things. And when we started comparing these fears, even just descriptively, we found a very interesting trend in which we didn't exactly find that gradient that we had expected. We'd expected to see, you know, white, Hispanic, African-American in terms of increasing levels of fear. Descriptively, what we found was that white community members don't worry about police brutality. Hmm. Hardly ever. Like we're talking less than 10% of them worried a lot about experiencing police brutality. I mean, that's good. Nobody should have to worry about police brutality. But what became more concerning was the level of police brutality or worry about police brutality for the Hispanic and African-American or black community, in which two-thirds of the African-American community was worried either a little or a lot about experiencing police brutality. Two-thirds. That's whopping. That's huge. Yeah. Thinking that is a huge, huge statistic. and. You know, and that's not just, that is a constant low-lying, it's almost like having a pot on simmer. It's just constantly there. You've got to monitor it. You've got to watch it. But it, it always has that potential of boiling over. Absolutely. And one of the things that we haven't quite touched on yet is the ways in which community members kind of mitigate this fear or try to address this fear. Now, as mentioned, you know, white community members don't really have this level of fear, right? So they don't really need to worry about mitigating this fear. So what do Hispanic and black community members do? Um, and what we know is that they become enmeshed in what's known as the talk. They have this conversation uh, with their children as young as six, seven, eight years old. Children about how to interact with law enforcement to make sure that they come home safely every day. To me, it's astounding. Um, but it's, it's that, that seems so sad when you think about what 
children that age, and I use the word should, and I realize the implications behind that, should or should not have to worry about, that these are conversations that those parents are having to have with these kids just to make sure they get home safe. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is some of the research points to the fact that having this talk or having to have this talk is actually really damaging to the personal identity of these children because not only are they being saddled with the responsibility of you know, on another adult's behavior to make sure that they get home safe, but they have to adjust their own personal identity as to being viewed as a threat by somebody else. Amanda, what uh, what can we do with this information that you've gathered? So, what can we do? I think that one of the first steps is knowing, because we don't know that we have a problem, how can we address it? So now that we have this information, uh, I can tell you personally that I'm moving forward with research that tries to understand even further what's going on um, because there are limitations as there are with every study, right? I'm trying to figure out why is this there, is this a level of fear in these communities? And we tried to get at that within this study, however, um, because our sample is nationally representative, uh, there are some limits. I mean, we know that the African-American population is about 100, or sorry, 13% of the population, as are the Hispanic population, right? So doing within-group analysis is a bit difficult. So one of the things that I have gone forth with is uh, starting to survey specifically Hispanic respondents to understand how they perceive the criminal justice system. What are the factors that shape how much they fear different aspects of it. Do they fear police because they've brought this uh, idea about police with them from wherever they've immigrated from? Is it a, a generational effect of immigration? Um, is there something unique about that experience? Now, one of the things we found that I find quite uh, saddening, but also interesting from a sociologic perspective is that when we did that in-group analysis for the African-American population, it was rather consistent. There were, in fancy words, it was rather homogenous. These respondents all reported experiencing the same levels of fear regardless of their uh, their sex, their marital status, their income, their education. And so from that, we can kind of theorize that this fear is rather pervasive in the black community. So what can we do about it? Circling back to your question here, what can we do? Well, part of it, it goes back to understanding how we police and understanding how policing impacts the communities around us. One of the things that started happening roughly in the 80s was uh, the coming forth of community policing, right? And the idea being that the police need the community in order to do their jobs effectively, uh, known as co-production of police services. After all, there's only so many of them that they can't do everything. And in order to repair that relationship, uh, several scholars have called on the use of procedural justice. Um, basically treating people with fairness and neutrality, dignity, respect, being viewed as trustworthy. And I think that for too long we've taken that for granted, that that's how we expect law enforcement to be. And don't get me wrong, that's absolutely what we'd expect from our law enforcement, but we can't make that assumption that it's going to be there every single time for everyone. 
but it should. Yeah, so I think you're right. I, I When people say they don't have a fear of the police, ask them that when they're, they're speeding down I-16. Um, I know if I, I tend to have a lead fit myself, when I'm flying down the highway, I'm always like, oh, crap, you know, uh, there's a cop. I'm going to get pulled over. But I never have to worry about that cop pulling me out of the car and hurting me physically. Um, that is not the fear. The fear is more getting caught. Um, but I also wonder, you know, in the Hispanic population, if the fear is I'm getting caught speeding, but now I'm going to be questioned as to whether I'm even supposed to be here exactly. or if I'm allowed to be here. Um, and then the last question I have, and I don't know if it's any something you've ever looked at, is I wonder, too, what is the police response to this in terms of do they have fear and worry that they will become violent or, or use excessive force? Is that something that they ever cognitively think about in terms of interacting with people? Um, you know, to be 100% honest, I'm not sure that there's much research that speaks specifically to officers in terms of them fearing having to use force. But we have to recognize that when officers are trained, they are trained to make sure that they come home at the end of the day. So they do have that kind of in the back of their minds that they want to survive every single encounter that they're coming into, which may lead them to come in a bit more wary of the people around them. Um, so. Do I think that that plays into um, police community relations, both sides fearing each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but how do we repair that? How do we make people less fearful of each other? Uh, that's interpersonal communication. That's building of trust. And it's got to come from both sides. Uh, I think um, that is like a perfect, a perfect ending to this little talk because, I mean, that, that is something that, that we have got to strive to is, is a is a certain amount of communication between one another and a, and a, and a willingness to just, okay, let me learn a little bit about what's going on here before coming in hot and heavy and, and reacting. So Amanda, I would like to thank you so much. I, I have so many more questions, but we are out of time. I would love to have you back and talk a little bit more about this as your research develops. And we look forward to seeing what else is gonna come out of the study. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Amanda. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.